Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can check out our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so today's episode is part one in a two-part series on grief, featuring my friend and commune teacher, David Kessler. One of the inevitable facets of our human reality is loss. And as David elucidates, loss can arise in myriad ways. Now, we often associate it with the physical death of a loved one. But humans also experience loss in the termination of a marriage, a friendship, or a job, or even the sale of a family home. Unless you are incapable of love, and that sounds rather bleak, then in life you will grieve some kind of loss. And it's easy to get stuck in the cycle of suffering that grief brings. There is simply not a lot of guidance on how to grieve. It certainly wasn't taught in high school. And this is where David's work comes in. In his new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, David eloquently outlines not only how to accept and acknowledge loss, but also how to find meaning in it, how to channel grief into purpose. Okay, also on today's show, we are joined by Liz Hernandez. Liz is an Emmy-nominated television personality and journalist. She is widely recognized as a top entertainment reporter for outlets including Access Hollywood, E! News, and MTV. Now, while Liz's career was taking off, she was also dealing with the cognitive decline of her mother and a tenuous relationship. She began working with David, who helped her find purpose in her pain, and the byproduct was Wordiful, a platform focused on how we communicate with others and ourselves. We'll hear more about Wordiful in today's episode. Also, Commune recently launched a course with David called Help for the Hurting Heart. You can access that course for five days for free by going to onecommune.com grief. So if you're experiencing grief in your life, then I sincerely hope you see some of your own story in today's conversation that can help alleviate the pressure. As David says, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Okay, Liz Hernandez and David Kessler, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you for having us. Good to be with you. So, David, uh, excited to be working with you, as always, and very appreciative uh, of your work um, and very appreciative of this connection that you've made um, with Liz. And I, and I think one of the things that you've been able to underscore is that the process of grief can apply to sort of myriad circumstances. Often people uh, associate it with the passing of a loved one. Um, but there are many other challenges and kinds of suffering that we face in life um, from the loss of a 
pet to the loss of a job to um, difficult relationships that, that have come and gone. And um, I think it's, it's, you've done a very articulate job at, at expressing that and helping people to really stand in the pain and be able to manage their grief to get to the other side of it and to find meaning in it. Um, and uh, so in that spirit, you've been kind enough to, to introduce um, me to Liz, who I know that you have done some work with. And uh, Liz is obviously very well known for her commitment to um, communication and words and conversation. So very grateful for her to kind of step into her vulnerability and share some of the challenges that she has faced um, in her life. And, you know, I just love to kind of open that conversation and, and hear a little bit about Liz and um, and some of the, the hurdles that she has gone through in her life and then how you guys have worked together to be able to to manage those. So thank you guys. Both oh, for- I'm so thrilled to be with you. And I want to just say a couple of things off of that little uh, uh, info you gave at the beginning, because I think it's so important. Like we don't think of grief as in divorce and breakups and relationships. And I always try to simplify it by going, grief is usually a change that we didn't want. Mm. You know, it's Mm. a change we didn't want. And the other thing you mentioned about standing in the pain, but I want people to know we stand in the pain with a purpose. I think that's important to realize. Yeah, yeah. And Liz, were you aware of David's work or or how did you how did you come to David? (laughs) David came. David came to me uh, through a gift. Uh, I was given the book Life Lessons uh, by David and uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And at the time, I was really in the thick of feeling so much child's guilt over my mother's disease with Alzheimer's. And there were a few chapters that really sucker punched me where I felt seen. I felt understood. I felt uh, less alone. And I did the ugly cry. I had to, I had to close the book and I had to go into the restroom and just start unraveling the toilet paper. And I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I literally thought to myself, you know, when you just feel so um, finally understood, I said, I wish I could hug this man because he's saying the things that I needed to hear that I don't know if I would have found this uh, way to open myself up to, to that breakthrough uh, any other way. And so you also long- like the love and you like the love and relationships in there too. Oh, there was, so, there was so much in that book that I took away. I mean, the, the reason it is life lessons. There was so much. And as life would have it, very serendipitous, uh, I had an event for my company a few months later and one of the guests, uh, our, my guest for that event was Maria Shriver. Maria Shriver had invited David Kessler, and there he was sitting front row at my event. <laughs> and I had just read his book. So that's how we were introduced. 
that's how amazing and life literally is. Literally, I was sitting in the front row, just sort of, you know, ready to be the student. And Liz comes out and says, is there a David Kessler here? And I'm like, what did I do? Did I park wrong? <laughs> did I block a space? What did I do? Because Jeff, you could imagine as I'm seeing, I'm seeing ticket sales come in and I have now really understood who this author is because I'm now intrigued that this is part of my healing process. And so when I see the tickets and I'm seeing David Kessler, I'm like, this cannot be the same David Kessler whose book I just read, who I just had a major breakthrough to. So of course I couldn't help myself. I get on the mic and I'm like, is there a David Kessler here? I must know. <laughs> David so humbly just raises his hand all shy. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like I've been in the world of entertainment for a very long time. And I've had the privilege of interviewing every celebrity under the sun. And I told him, I said, but you are my Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly who you remind me of, David, Beyonce. I will say. Exactly, exactly. I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah. And because this is mostly an audio format, we can get away with that description, I think. Um, <laughs> you yeah. Everyone will see later. It's a joke. <laughs> Although I will say one of the funniest things that happened in my life around images is there was a picture years ago of me and Dolly Parton. And underneath it said, Dolly Parton left, David Kessler right. And I think it's so clear who Dolly Parton is. And you know that no one's confusing me with Dolly Parton or Beyonce or anyone like that. So anyway, well, there we go. Clearly you have, <laughs> you have different, but also superlative qualities. So, you know, Liz, I, I had my grandfather had Parkinson's, which is obviously different than Alzheimer's, but, you know, I, I was very, very close to his cognitive decline. <clears throat> and, um, he was a very gregarious and social, garrulous, charismatic uh, guy. He was a, a, a cardiologist that quit cardiology in his 50s to become a musician, which uh, wasn't necessarily like the lucrative decision, but it was a very spiritual decision for him. And he was a great performer. And just watching that decline, um, particularly through the eyes of my father, but also with my relationship with him um, was, was very difficult. And, um, and we, you know, this was some time ago and we just weren't really properly trained to, to grieve. You know, we didn't know exactly what to do. So I wonder, you know, if you could share a little bit about kind of your experiences, you know, potentially, you know, dealing with your mother or, or other examples in your life that then you've been able to apply some of the lessons that you've been able to glean from David and his work. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sorry for that experience because I, I just think anytime we see anyone we love going through a transformation in their health, it's just so heartbreaking and especially when they lose a part of their identity that we're so used to, it, it's, it's shocking for everyone. I think what David taught me the most, whether it was during the process of losing my mother, because that's what Alzheimer's is, it's like small funerals every 
sometimes week, every month, because you're losing a part of them. And uh, David also helped me through a really tough breakup. And so what he did for me was he lessened the fear so that I could properly process the hurt and the pain and just show up for that. So I remember it was in my mom's final weeks and I kept giving David all these scenarios of what if I'm not there when she takes her last breath? What if, you know, I miss this step of it? And he just kept reminding me that exactly where I am is where I needed to be. And it doesn't take away any of the love that I shared with my mother, whether I'm present there or if I'm not. And that allowed me to calm myself and to get rid of the storytelling that we do so well of um, it's kind of like we want this perfect way of, of, of death to unfold. And once he told me that every situation is going to unfold the way it's supposed to, uh, I was just allowed to feel the grief of sadness in losing my mother, as opposed to the sadness, then fear on top of it. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really great series of, of points. And it, it sounds like David came into your life prior to the, the passing of your mom. And I, I think so many, in so many cases, grief really takes us by surprise because we lose a loved one or something happens. And then, you know, we go through these, these different stages and they're not necessarily linear. Um, but, you know, something that I personally re relate to quite viscerally is that stage of um, or phase of negotiation mm -hmm. where I often say to myself around, you know, inflection points or points of crises in my own life, you know, if only I had done this or if I had said this a little bit differently or if I had been there, um, I particularly thinking about, you know, my parents' divorce, uh, which happened, you know, when I was a, a young boy. Um, and it was very painful. And to be honest, like I really thought that I could fix it. And then subsequently for years after, in some, in a lot of ways, really blamed myself and kind of extended this process of grieving um, through that, that if only. And I wonder, David, if you could maybe yeah. unpack that a little I bit. Would. Because... I was just going to use that word. I, I'd like to sort of unpack the wisdom you're both sharing. So first of all, the concept I think of that I always use is pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. If we're on planet Earth, we're going to experience pain and loss if we decide to love anyone. You know, grief is optional. You don't ever have to go through the pain of a breakup, of someone dying, but if you want to attach, if you want to love your pet, your partner, your spouse, your parent, your child, you're going to experience pain at some point. I don't want to make this journey without love. So I get it's a package deal. I'm going to get the pain too. However, there is suffering that our mind does. And let me go back to both of you if I could. You know, breaking up with someone, someone breaking up with us, loss of relationships, hard. It's painful. My job is to help you with the pure grief. I want to get rid of that voice that goes, 
by the way, they were your one and only soulmate, and now they're gone. What? What? Like, it's not bad enough? The one person who is your soulmate is gone forever? No, I want to remind you that's not the truth. Your soulmate isn't the person that leaves. Your soulmate is the person that stays. David said something to me that was, you said something, David, that was so profound. I said to him, but that was my person. And David said, no, that was a person. And if they were meant to be in your life, they would be in your life. It was just that simple. And I got it. And how cruel our mind is to say the one person, only one person meant for you has now vanished. And then when we talk about your case, Jeff, the idea of your parents divorcing, we want to try to control the uncontrollable. We'd rather feel guilty than helpless. Mm. So our mind grabs onto what could I have done different so that they wouldn't have divorced, so that they wouldn't break up with me, so that they wouldn't have betrayed me, so that they wouldn't have died. We want to find that small thing that we think was in our control and must have done it. But that's rarely the truth of what happens in loss. Mm. Yeah. I also, in in retrospect with the, the luxury of time, I, um, I realized that, that that boy was experiencing a tremendous amount of fear. And in fear, I think you can resort to a couple of different paths. For me, the, the easiest path, or in some ways, I suppose the most empowering path was anger. Because in my anger, I, there was a sense of strength and self-worth. So, you know, I took it upon myself to like punish my mother. I was going to be angry. I was going to take this fear that I was feeling like, oh, my life is never going to be the same. And where am I going to go for Christmas? And, you, you know, like all of the imaginary futures that I was like creating for myself. And in that uncertainty, it was very easy for me to channel that into anger. Um, and it took me years to to realize that that was well, not a pro- profitable yeah. path for me. But it is a reaction that we have, and it is a normal reaction. I always say anger is pain's bodyguard. Mm. You know, anger is pain's bodyguard. And in the when you're young and even when you're older, we get lost in the pain and we're just lost. And anger in a strange way gives us a purpose. It gives us an anchor in this ocean of pain. And part of the problem is we don't know how to get the anger out without hurting someone or something. We're not taught how to do that. And on top of it, we live in an anti-anger society. I often tell a story. I was going through my Facebook one day and Lo and behold, there's this post, a meme, a graphic that says, for every day you smile, you get another day of life. And for every day you're angry, you lose a day of life. And I went, oh, that pisses me off. Oh, darn it. I just lost another day. I got to switch to Instagram. 
right? <laughs> and it's that sort of don't be angry. And we suppress this natural emotion. And I have this thing. If I'm upset with you, if I'm angry at you, I'm going to let that anger out before I talk to you. I want to release that anger from my body. You know, obviously in this course we just did, Paul Denniston's doing grief yoga. He's got so many techniques to move that anger out. Because how many times have we had a conversation with people that they're so busy reacting to our anger, we're not really effective. Yeah. We really regret something we say. Right. Or we turn the yeah. anger on ourselves. I do anger outward, but I know a lot of people who do anger inward. People talk to me sometimes about their teenagers and like my teenage son just hit a hole in the wall and punched a hole in the wall. And I'm like, thank goodness. And they're like, why thank goodness? And I'm like, you don't want that punch to go in. It's so much better when the punch goes out. Yeah. I mean, there was a phase, a separate phase in my life that was around a, a really unfortunate and painful business ordeal. And uh, I felt extremely betrayed um, within the context of that of that situation. And I, for about a six month period, I would be up all night, sort of brooding, plotting the most ridiculous forms of revenge. You know, things that I never would have actually done. And you know, in the at the end of the day, like I was holding this ember in my hand, like waiting for the right time to throw it at someone. But all that time, like I was the one getting burned, right? <laughs> and, you know, of course, these are the lessons that you, you know, hopefully accrue, um, you know, as, and, you, as you put some rings around your trunk. <laughs> right. And we learn betrayal, which is also a form of grief. Betrayal never comes from an enemy. Betrayal always comes from someone we trusted. So it is the grief of the loss of the trust. Right. And I just got to tell you, one of the things I love about working with your community, Jeff, and commune and with Liz's community, and just about working with Liz, is I got to tell you, sometimes Liz would go, I'm so appreciative of you talking with me and helping me and coaching me. And I'm like, Liz, I'm not even a coach, but I'm so thrilled that someone's taking the information in. How many of us, yes, but our teachers all the time? And Liz is just like such a, you know, as they say, an empty rice bowl saying, here's how I've been doing it, not getting the results I want. Is there another way I'd love to learn? And it was really wonderful. I don't even think about, oh, I was her coach. I, we were partnering in sort of the issues of life. Yeah. Liz, how do you like being referred to as an empty rice bowl? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anything David Kessler throws my way, it still <laughs> astonishes me that we've become such close friends. Uh, like I said, just the way I came across him, it, he really saved me with his words. And, and I do feel that 
our superpower is our stories. And what was beautiful about the beginning of my relationship with David was that it was just an exchange of stories. He would tell me something about his life. I would tell him something about my life. And there was this immediate trust and bond that was built. And when you understand that how knowledgeable someone is and and how much work they've done. I had so much respect for David. So I was wide open. It was, please tell me everything. And I'm here to listen because, you know, I understand that I don't know. I don't have all the answers. And I was kind of getting, getting hit over the head twice. It was like a double whammy. I was grieving the loss of my relationship. I was grieving my mother. So I... I pretty much came to David on hands and knees saying, help. <laughs> yeah, fill my rice bowl. Um, rice bowl. <laughs> so, you know, David, in his last book, you know, built upon, I, I think, what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross most famously um, coined as the five stages of grief and really started unpacking the notion of meaning on the other side of it. And Liz... I think I can draw a straight line, you know, to you and your work around that, because it, it feels like, and maybe you could elaborate on this, that Wordiful, which I hope you can go into and, and tell us a little bit about what that is, you know, grew out of of that pain that you experienced, you know, with your mother and her sort of decreasing cognitive function and, and ability to her express herself. So maybe you could kind of pull that thread through the, the needle a bit. Absolutely. Wordiful first started, I come from a background in radio and radio being that it's so instantaneous, you share a story and the phone lines light up and everyone wants to chime in on the story. And once I went into television, that communication was completely cut off. Now you're just speaking into a camera and there is no reaction. There is no sense of uh, someone understanding what you've been through because you're not really talking about, at least I was in, I was in entertainment news, talking about things of substance. And so I wanted to create a platform where I could get back to storytelling, get back to the things that connected me uh, to just feeling alive in my emotions and what I was going through day in and day out because I had done radio for so long. And that's how it started. And right when I started the, the, and again, it was just me in front of a single camera, you know, it was just such a put together with like gum and tape. (laughs) (laughs) And right, right when this all happened, my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and like you said, began losing her language. Suddenly communication just took on a completely different meaning for me. It was understanding how what a gift it is to communicate. And I didn't want to be careless with my words. I really wanted to start thinking about how I was just speaking, what my message was out into the world, because I was starting to notice the things that my mother was holding on to were the phrases, thank you. And I love you. And that was about it. She wasn't saying a whole lot more. And so I just thought what I would give to just sit and have a conversation with her and we take for granted the fact that we're able to sit here and communicate and express ourselves. And so this uh, series, the Wordiful series started to turn into a confessional. It started to turn into my place where I would go to not only honor uh, 
what was happening with, with losing my mother and her losing her language. And it, it, it was a culmination of all these different things. And I was just able to lean into that. And so then when I met David and I started reading his books, you know, I didn't know all the different phases of what you go through during grief. And all of a sudden I started to understand myself better. It was like, okay, I understand. Like I was just bargaining with myself last night. It doesn't end just because, you know, you went through a couple months of grieving. No, it continues. And I, maybe I'll go through that for the rest of my life, but at least I understand it now. And when I, you under, you know, the more, you know, the better you're able to understand yourself and be less of a so-called bully to yourself when you're going through those processes. So uh, yeah, I owe David a lot because he's contributed He's contributed a lot to the work that I do uh, in understanding myself and then therefore being able to share my story with others. And just to also add, you know, wordiful means words are wonderful. Are powerful. Are powerful. <laughs> and, you know, Liz has created just, I mean, when you look at her Instagram, she takes a word, like a word, and explores one word, and you're blown away by it. She's, you know, created an in-person community. She's created an online community. And it's really just beautiful to watch all that she's done. Thank you, David. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. And I think, you know, Finding words as vessels for emotion is so salient right now. Um, I think so much, particularly set against the the context of COVID, where we're very, where many of us are very isolated, and our communities have migrated almost exclusively onto social media, and, and social media for all of its um, sort of positive features. Also, there's some bugs in the software there because it's not uh, a great platform for kind of nuanced or complicated public discourse, or sometimes the sharing of stories gets gets lost there because it, it requires kind of brevity or memes or quote cards. And you can't necessarily get in to the blood and guts of a story, which is often like I said, like very, very nuanced. And I think, you know, David, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the power of story to bring people together and to really help people recognize each other's common humanity. And I will also say that I think there is a political dimension of this as well, because obviously we're living in this kind of hyper-polarized moment politically where it seems like people can't even really talk to each other and a lot of social media conversations immediately turn into these kind of all caps vitriolic barbs thrown at each other and we we're, we're sort of lacking the ability to kind of step back into our stories and in these stories we find so many shared values um so I wonder, you know, if you could sure. talk about that a little bit. Sure. So there's a couple of things I think about that. And it really, you know, it's so much of our work. As human beings, we want to belong. And at the same time, we want to stand out. We want to do both. Belong 
and stand out. So it's interesting. I don't do one-on-one -on -one work with people very often at all. I love group dynamics. I think, you know, not Liz was very unique in my world. So many times when I'm talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, yes, but and you don't understand. And, and it's like, I'm fighting sort of the, the, the yes, buts just to talk to them. And in a group dynamic, like when I do in-person groups or retreats, or I'm doing things online now, my online groups, when I do them, there's something about, I'm talking to Liz, but Jeff, you find yourself in our discussion. We find ourselves in each other's stories. And you can yes, but me if I'm talking to you. But when you look at me talking to Liz, you're like, oh, you know, I beat myself up the way she does too. Oh, and there's an opening in learning that happens mm. in a group. So there is now any entity has the power for good and the power for not good. I love to use group settings for healing. We've also learned in many studies, if you put 10 people in a room and they're kind of not sure, they've done an actual test on this. They're actually not sure about a conspiracy theory they've heard. If you put 10 people in a room and have them talk about that conspiracy theory for two hours, they come out more convinced of it than ever. And they come out feeling like they belong. And now they stand out because they now can like help the other world know about this theory. We like to blame it all on the algorithms of social networks, which are absolutely true. And in human nature, we want agreement from each other. We can physically go down the rabbit hole the same way we can do it on our social networks. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I tend to find on, on social media, um, but also like, as you say, can it, it exist in real life that there is almost like a gamification around uh, the concept of, of fitting in where, you know, someone might say something and it may have no basis in truth or fact, um, but it, 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 but it elicits a response. And then there is a, there is an instinct to then almost raise the ante and say, well, and also this, <laughs> and that almost exalts you into a, a higher status, you know, within the group. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing that obviously in our culture right now where, you know, there's ideas that are getting passed around, you know, on the internet, particularly that, you know, don't really have any basis in truth, but provide people with a lot of community. Um, and, right. Uh, yeah. And do I want to be right or do I want to get it right? Mm. And the yeah. truth is, you know, if I'm, if I'm in an insecure place and we've all been wounded by people and wounded people wound people. If I'm in an insecure place and I'm with Liz and I'm with Jeff, oh, they know what they're talking about. And, oh, you know, no one thinks I'm right. 
I want to go to another group that agrees with me where they're going to think I'm right. On the other hand, if I can look and go, oh my gosh, I've got a set of eyes, but how wonderful I can ask Liz what the world looks like from her eyes. And I can ask Jeff, what does the world look like from his eyes? And I get these amazing viewpoints that I get to grow and learn from versus be against. Right, yeah. It does require humility, the removal of armor or what is sometimes called the totalitarian ego, um, you know, that is constantly looking for confirmation bias or desirability bias that you really just completely, you know, you just want to be proved over and over again that you are right. (laughs) Um, And let's bring it back to our subject. There is a vulnerability in grief. That when people are telling you, you're crying too much, you're not crying enough, you need to get over that person, you need to move on. It's all, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. And I'm here to remind us in grief, you can't do it wrong. The only wrong way you can do it is if you give up on your feelings and try to do it right for the other. Mm -hmm. And this is your journey. Yeah. Liz, I wonder if you find yourself, as you've become more and more acquainted with this material, um, if you find yourself stepping increasingly into the role of teacher a bit within the context of your community. I mean, obviously, you're very you know, well-recognized in media for your many contributions. But as you have grown as a human, do you see yourself within your community as someone who is now positioned to impart wisdom to others? I can answer that and say, yes, 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 yes. Yes, she's an amazing teacher, just FYI. But go ahead, Liz. (laughs) David, you're so kind. Uh, It's a very fine line. I I really try my best, and I'm very aware, to stay off off of the soapbox. And that's why I share my own personal stories. I don't like to wag my finger at anyone. I just said, here's what I've been through. Here's what I've learned from it. And here's how I'm growing. And, you know, just to circle back to what we were just speaking about, that's the beauty. If you sit in a room full of people and you all ask them uh, if they've ever had their heart broken, everyone is going to have a story. And suddenly you're not thinking about if it's a male or a female. You're not thinking about their social status. You're not thinking about you're just thinking about them as the person that's had their heart broken, whether they be a brother, a sister, or a loss of a parent, loss of a pet, you, you, you suddenly find that heart connection mm-hmm. and that relatability. And to me, that's where, that's, that was the intention with Wordiful. It was to build a community where we could all relate to one another and see each other. And I'm hoping that my, the stories that I tell could be a catalyst for that 
but even, you know, the original intention for Wordiful and, you know, prior to COVID, this, it was on track to do this, was to remove myself from the actual seat of teacher and bring in people like a David Kessler and all walks of life to share their stories and a word that was meaningful to them. David was kind enough to be a guest on Wordiful and he did the word grief. And who better to share the word grief than David? So, you know, hopefully once this pandemic is over, that's really my intention is not just to be a so-called teacher, but to share the teachings of others as well. Yeah, beautiful. Um, David, you may, I'm quite positive that you've read this book, but I've just started reading Eric Fromm's Art of Loving. Um, And uh, Fromm has some great quotes about grief and um, that essentially underscoring the idea that, that grief is really the acknowledgement of our ability to love. And that, you know, we can choose not to grieve, but essentially, if we do that, we are eschewing our capacity for love. Um, But one of the central messages of of his book was the idea that the, the fundamental problem in humanity is our sense of separation, that we feel like separate individuals living in a separate external universe in competition with others, separate from nature, separate from the divine, however we want to, to describe the divine um, for us. And, and what this contributes is, is, uh, is basing our identity through in our ego in essentially like what other people think of us, our position in society, our resume, Um, our job title, how much money we're making, how much, you know, what we have. And Liz, it sounds like the container that you're creating really starts to shed a lot of those, um, a lot of those preconceptions of, of the ego, where in story, you start to feel this incredible sense of connection, um, kind of the opposite of separateness. And, you know, there's a lot of religions that have been created with that goal in mind. You know, Buddhism, the, the you know, the terminus of Buddhism is nirvana, sort of this realization of the non-self. Or in Hinduism, there's this idea of connecting with Brahman, sort of an all-encompassing self of which we are all just kind of modifications or, or reflections. And so it, it sounds like what you are manifesting is is almost kind of spiritual or religious in the sense that it is about kind of losing our sense of the individuated self and really connecting to this idea that we are all interdependent and, and connected. Absolutely. It's, I mean, when you think about the, the human connection of, There's only a spectrum of emotions we can feel, and we all have them. And at any moment, whether you acknowledge it or not, your neighbor across the street, you may be feeling the same exact thing they're feeling. Different experiences, but it's the same emotions. And that, to me, is what's beautiful. And how we connect to that same emotion is through our stories. And to go along with that in the Eric Fromm quote is this idea that when we're in grief, 
we think we might do it wrong, it's taking too long. When we get our heart broken, when someone betrays us, there's so much shame that we, 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 we're broken up with and we become isolated. And I'm someone who wants to teach, as I know both of you do, is that if you're in the game of life and who wants to be on the sideline, if you're on the game of life, you are going to get someone betraying you. Someone's going to break up with you. Someone's going to die. And our only choice is to not get involved in life. And who wants that? So if you're getting broken up with, congratulations on living life fully. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. I've betrayed. I've been betrayed. I've broken up with people. They've broken up with me. People have died. My sons died. My parents it's hideous. And no matter what you've been through, oh, a life worth living is still possible. Yeah, there's a business analogy there too, where if you're an entrepreneur, you're essentially guaranteed failure. Um, and, you know, I've started businesses and I've had successes and I've had miserable falls on my face. <laughs> um, but I'm, you know, in the arena, as, as Teddy Roosevelt said. Brown would say Roosevelt. Or, right. yeah. yeah, exactly. And, um, and you know, and, uh, you know, with any sort of self-reflection, you know, you want to be in the arena. You don't, you, you don't want the half-lived life. You want the full-lived life. And, you know, that, that requires some risk. You know, I've been really fortunate enough to find a, a partner in my life that has, in some ways, I feel like mitigated that risk. And I, it, it's really helped me redefine commitment as something that that a lot of people define within the parentheses of limitation, of sacrifice, of what you have to give up. But, you know, I've been with my partner for 33, 34 years, most of my life. And for me, that commitment has provided this kind of unconditional bedrock of acceptance that has allowed me to take all of these madcap business risks and fail uh, at times, but fail w with the assurance that I always have this kind of pillow of, of acceptance of, of partnership to, to cushion my fall. And in that way, you know, I've really become to define commitment um, as freedom, as something liberating and not something limiting. And I, I don't think that applies only to romantic relationship. I think that applies to a whole variety of commitments. And I want to add to that, that I think, you know, Mary Ann Williamson has a wonderful line that she talks about. As we mature, our romantic relationships become friendlier and our friendships become more romantic. <laughs> I mean, I think the same way you said that, I think I can engage with more risk in the world because not only do I have a partner, I know I have a Liz and I know I have a Jeff and we're all there to like catch each other and, you know, wipe each other off after we've been through a fall. The other quote that I heard that I think is so funny and so true is a perfect plan is what you have before you engage with reality. 
right? We all have a perfect plan and then we engage with reality and it all becomes different. Yeah. I I think also a lot of the processes that we have discussed, and I wonder, Liz, if you can relate to this in, in any way, is, you know, when I was young, particularly, I was really trying to sort of fill the deficiencies in my own character through relationship with other people. And, you know, it's taken me, honestly, quite a long time to cautiously develop some kind of self-love. And oftentimes that happens through crisis and adversity. So I, I wonder if kind of the experience of dealing with your mother contributed to some sense of, of, of building self-love in your case? Oh, that was, I think my, that's, I think that was the journey. I went on that journey so I could learn self-love. <laughs> you know, everything serves its purpose. And if I'm going to take a page from David's book, Finding Meaning, that was literally me finding meaning, was having to look at, Uh, all the emotions I was going through and the questions that I would ask myself, who am I going to be when my mother dies? What is my place in this world when my mother dies? The overwhelming sense of abandonment I felt uh, knowing that she was going to pass soon. And what would that mean to my own self-worth and my own self-esteem? And it was really interesting and now beautiful in hindsight to look at how I was intertwining my relationship that I was getting out of and my relationship with my mother, because I was looking for someone to give me that validation and that love I needed, how you were just speaking of your relationship and how it was that comfort and that reassurance. And when you have both of those things ripped out from underneath you, you feel like you're falling down a hole that there is no end to. And I realized that while I was feeling the sense of abandonment, I had really abandoned myself. And so I had to start to unpack all of that. I had to start uh, really understanding who I was, regardless of who was in my life, even someone as big as my mother, who no one was ever going to love me as much as she did. And so for me, I think the the biggest thing was... um, really having to just go inward and 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 just start asking myself some really hard questions and and journaling what those answers were and just recently i i finally i mean i think self-love is a lifelong journey i think it's something you have to work out every single day uh but just recently i i just had that realization of you know when you understand how much a parent loves their child, and I definitely understood how much my mother loved me and how much I love her, I never wanted to treat myself badly anymore. I didn't want to talk badly to myself. I didn't want anyone else to speak to me in a way that made me feel badly about myself because I thought I am my mother's legacy and I'm definitely not going to let someone treat Armida's daughter that way. That's the way I started looking at it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I recently watched uh, a movie again, and Liz, I think you're a little bit younger than than David and I, but maybe you know it, which is Jerry Maguire, um, where Tom Cruise 
sort of tearfully bares his soul to Renee Zellweger at, at one point, and he says, "You complete me," <laughs> and. Um, and, that destroyed so many relationships. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, inevitably in that movie, uh, and of course, there's a lesson to be drawn from this: is that Jerry needs to complete himself. Correct. And um, and you know, I was lucky to get into a, a relationship at a pretty young age. Um, you know, when I was kind of exploring the exhilarating darkness of adolescence. I had a partner there to kind of prop me up as I was screwing myself up in every possible way. But, you know, over time, I developed that those tools to, quote unquote, complete myself. And, um, and as you say, you know, that's a process. Self-love is a process. It's I don't think there's a, there's a terminus to that to that train ride. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that, Jeff, because I want to tell you, you know, it's interesting when you were describing your partner and how your partner was the one that helped you do all this. And you've got an amazing partner. Amazing. And I also want you to know you weren't an empty vessel that if it's not for her, nothing good would have happened. I mean, don't forget giving yourself credit for who you are, not just because of her, but in addition to her. Yeah, I think over time, I've been fortunate enough to be able to transmute love as something taken to love as something given. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's fortunate, but that's, I think within all of our capacity um, that, you know, love can be a state of being that we can inhabit if we engage in the right practices, it almost becomes a reflexive behavior. And then, you know, we start to not see as much separation. We start to see those common stories, you know, that Liz is fostering without necessarily having to sit around in that circle, you know, and, um, and these, this is part of the evolution of becoming a whole human. Uh, <laughs> and it is an evolution. I think about Jerry Maguire, and it was this belief system of we're two halves, and together we're going to be whole. And I think the archetype we're finding is we're actually two wholes coming together and creating this new entity. Yeah. And we do that with a bazillion different soulmates. We're the three of us are creating something right now and we're creating something in your community and in Liz's community. And it's a bunch of whole people coming together and reminding ourselves of our wholeness and growing exponentially versus we're a bunch of broken, needy people who come together and try to fix one another. And it's really hard because it's bottomless. And I think so many times we forget that it's having to work on that relationship with ourselves and that then dictates the types of relationships we're going to have with everybody else. Because if it's wobbly with me and I'm being unkind to me and I'm being destructive with myself, what do you think is going to happen with my external relationships as well? Well, exactly. And I find when I'm particularly needy, um, I'm thrusting 
uh, the requirements of my ego onto other people in my ecosystem, hoping that they fill those up instead of actually looking inward and 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 trying my best to, to fill them up myself. And that doesn't mean that there won't be periods of loss and grief in my life that I, I you know, won't want to call my dad and be like, hey, you know, I'm kind of down, like, help me, <laughs> like, give me a little nudge. But inevitably, you know, I, I want to be able to also provide that love and care, you know, for myself. And I often feel, and I, you know, David, I, I don't know if this resonates in any way, but in the absence of need, that is when I feel the most giving and loving. And when I can really fully fulfill my needs and I'm not needy, I tend to then move into a place of greater giving. Such a wonderful distinction to understand. As human beings, we have needs. And having a need does not make us needy. Mm. And so many of us, when we have a need, label ourselves as weak and needy. And I'm a reminder, it's okay to have needs. In fact, healthy boundaries show you have needs and let's get your needs met. We don't have to have these pendulums of you're either really needy or narcissistic. I mean, there's a balance in between there. Yeah. I think it's it, it, what's your, what, at least if I'm getting it right, Jeff, it's, it's more about learning to self-soothe. It's like you can have the needs, but first learn how to self-soothe and then you can go look for support because we do thrive off of human connection and community. We do need to be able to go and speak to our David Kesslers of the world and, and ask for their input and ask for their help. But if I come to him and I can't even calm and soothe myself, then I might be in trouble. <laughs> or, or we remind each other that we have the ability in us. Yeah. I'm only reflecting the ability you have. I can't soothe anyone who actually can't soothe themselves. Yeah, and I, I think it's important because often self-care or soothing oneself is can be considered indulgent, um, and it couldn't be more the opposite um, because how are we going to take care of the people that we love? How are we going to take care of our community if we don't feel healthy and full. And Liz, I, I wonder, as someone who's quite public, are, are there ways that you would advise people in ter- uh, around techniques to pursue self-care? Absolutely. I'm a big uh, advocate of gratitude journaling. I've been gratitude journaling for over 15 years. So I have, I have a few rituals. That is one of them. Every morning, I write three things that I'm grateful for. I have my little journal right here. <laughs> uh, when it came to loss and uh, grieving my mother, one of the things that was really helpful and self-soothing is I started a journal to my mother, and I write her love notes. I tell her how much I miss her, what I want to share with her. And uh, I meditate. For me, that's, I think, the most profound thing that came into my life was learning how to get quiet with myself 
and just learning how to be a people watcher of my own thoughts, <laughs> of just kind of sitting on the bench and watching my thoughts go by and saying, okay, this is how wild my thinking can get. And can I just focus back on what the truth is? And uh, to me, that it, those those are really some of the fundamental uh, and even pillars for what Wordiful is. So that's been extremely helpful in my world. Mm, yeah, I, I share that sentiment as well, just to cultivate that ability to witness your thoughts and feelings and emotions and not identify with them. And I even try to use, I try to extend that practice into language where, you know, I try not to say like, I am scared or I am angry. I try to say, well, I feel angry or I feel scared or fearful. And just that reframing um, helps to acknowledge this idea that these are emotions and thoughts that are just arising and subsiding, you know, moment by moment in consciousness. You are not those things. <laughs> right. My thing is I'm always going, no, you are not broken. And I understand you feel broken. Mm. You yeah. feel broken in the breakup, the betrayal, the death, but you are not broken. Yeah, and, but I think... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, sorry, David, what, what Jeff was saying is huge because I think so many people do identify that they are the emotion. Right. And it, 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 it takes a long time to really uh, understand the difference. Now, the other thing I want to add to this conversation, another face of self-love and self-compassion, and I actually talked about this in the course, and it's really the essence of all our work. You know, when my air conditioning heating system breaks, the most loving thing for myself is to get support. When something else goes wrong, I don't try to tackle it myself. I get support. When we hit a betrayal, a breakup, a divorce, a loved one dying, somehow we're like, we got to white knuckle through this alone. And that's a moment we need community and we need someone who's not in it to give us a little wisdom or give us a little guidance. And I think that's what we all do for each other in all our communities. And in this course we just created that I think is so important that sometimes the most loving thing for you is to allow yourself to be supported. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation today with Liz Hernandez and David Kessler. To learn more about Liz's venture, Wordiful, please visit wordiful.com. And if you would like to access David's commune course, Help for the Hurting Heart, you can get a free five-day pass at onecommune.com slash grief. And as always, feel free to email me at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. And make my mom proud leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.